So these are foundational doctrines. Then we have foundational ethics. Foundational ethics are found in the old covenant. Let me give you like five or six. The, the concept of retribution. What is retribution, by the way? Payback. Okay. When I was growing up, I was taught what almost every human being throughout human history up till about the last 20 years was taught. Which is you reap what you sow. You do the crime, you do the time. You disobey, you get punished. Right? All of those statements are retribution statements. Basically, the idea is I'm responsible for my actions. If I do what is civilly or morally wrong, there's consequences. There's retribution that needs to be paid, whatever it looks like. But have you noticed there's been a little bit of a shift in the last 20, 30, 40 years where, again, it's not so much about paying back. It's about being rehabilitated or it's about finding the people and making them pay who made you that way. Or it's about correcting behavior. You might think, well, these are just subtleties, but you start to add them up. And we have a generation that is increasingly, um, their worldview is increasingly opposed to the basic concepts of the gospel because they don't even believe that retribution is moral. But the Bible presents retribution as moral. But culture is like, no, retribution is like immoral. Didn't the prophet say, beware of men call evil good and good evil? It's like they actually flip that which is moral on its head and make it immoral. And if you keep your antennas up and you pay careful attention to the messages that you get from culture, you'll, you'll see these things, those messages everywhere. And so we, we have uh, scriptures that help us to keep those things in check. Justice, that is like a huge theme, especially in the prophets. But it's, it, the foundation for biblical justice is uh, in the Torah. When the widow, the alien, the foreigner, the destitute, the poor, the maimed, whatever, is around you, you have responsibilities to that person. It's not just about you. You know, you have responsibilities to that person. There's, there's, there's a, a code of justice that shapes your conduct and your approach to that person. Mercy. What would be, in your view, the first example of mercy in the Bible? What was that, Carrie? Maybe a little before that. Yeah, they're, they sin, they're hiding out in the garden and um, didn't kill them, right? He actually helped to clothe them. So that's mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace, um, getting what you don't deserve is often how we describe grace. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. I think those are good in historic definitions. Equity. So treating people equitably doesn't equity doesn't necessarily mean equally because there's different expectations depending on the nature of your relationship. So I, I don't, I'm I'm not responsible to treat like every child in the world equal to my own, but I am responsible to treat them equitably. I'm not responsible to, treat every woman in the world in the same way that I treat my wife, but I must treat them equitably. So in a, in a way that is appropriate to the circumstances. So these are all foundational ethics. And then we have foundational themes. And I've already shared some of these. We'll list them out a little bit. Foundational themes woven through the Bible from beginning to end creation law Covenant, promise, 
prophecy, Messiah, atonement, election, marriage, circumcision, faithfulness, sovereign grace, and end times. Okay, those are not those are not um, exclusive to the Torah, but that's where we first find out about those things. And then those themes just get woven and interwoven. Marriage and covenant is interwoven together in Malachi. These things are woven together throughout scripture. These are like, if you kind of think of the Bible as like let's say it was just a giant scroll. You have these themes woven through and they, they weave over top of one another, right? They're, they're all like intermingled right to the end. So when you get down here, if you've studied this out and now you're, let's say in Romans, I'll just use Romans because it's heavily theological, the message of Romans is just going to like leap off the page at you. If you understand things like covenant, you understand things like the ethics, retribution, justice. But if you've never read your Bible before and you just flip it open to Romans, yeah, you're going to be blessed by it, but you're going to be reading it in a much different way than you are if you've, tracked these themes that you're going to have all these aha moments throughout the scriptures. I will say this too. Most of the time, most of the time when unbelievers or skeptics challenge us in our faith. And the classic example is there's, there's errors in the Bible, right? There's errors in the Bible or there's inconsistencies in the Bible. That's kind of the go-to lines. A good tactic is to say, okay, just to show me those, please. Yeah, they, they, won't, they won't know where they are because they've just heard this on the last documentary they watched on Netflix. But if the person can say, okay, this is what I'm seeing, it's either because they're, de- they're dealing with an inadequate translation, which is rare unless you're wearing, like reading something from like the Watchtower Society or something like that, or they're just misreading it. Their, their ability to actually read is inadequate or they don't understand these background themes. And so things appear to be contradictory or nonsensical, but they don't understand the progress of time or the historical circumstances, or they have an inadequate view of whatever covenant promise, marriage, whatever it might be. And so then there's a, a twisting and a malformation of their uh, conclusion. So reading the old Testament really helps with a lot of this. Here's a, a number five, the prophets, the prophets repeatedly quote from the Torah. They quote from it all the time. I don't even remember the number anymore, but I, I, I vaguely remember studying the number of books that Jesus quotes from in Matthew. I think it's something like 27 from the old covenant scriptures. It's a lot. Jesus Quotes from the old covenant all the time. It is written, thus saith the Lord. This is what God said. He's quoting from it all the time. Paul does. They're, they're borrowing actual verses. They're borrowing themes. They're borrowing allusions from the Old Testament. And then the prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, time and time again, they are borrowing from what God has already said. When you think of a prophet, what do you normally think of? If I, if I tell you I'm a prophet, how would you you know, in colloquial English, understand that. What am I claiming? Okay. Okay, something that happened in the future, right? So I have the ability to tell you about the future. What's interesting is if you read the prophets of the Old Covenant, very rarely are they talking about the future at all. What are they doing? Okay, they're calling for repentance, but after what? They're pointing you back. So I would just say like 80%, I'm just making up a number, 
not like scientific. 80% of the prophet's job is to point you back to what God has already said. 20%, let's say, is to point you to the future. So the role of the prophet is mostly to police what God has already said rather than to predict what God will do. Most of it. But we've kind of made profit all about pointing to the future. Tell me about the future. Tell me, it's like a fortune teller. But the prophets, even the inspired, authoritative prophets of the old covenant, most of their energy is reminding us what God has already said and policing it and warning us what will happen if we don't do it. That's, that's most of their job. And then obviously with divine insight, they can also point us to, to the future. And then six, I kind of jumped ahead of myself here a little bit, but I'll just separate Jesus out here. Jesus also quotes from it extensively. So the prophets and later the apostles and Jesus quotes extensively from the Old Testament. Here's an example. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Who were they? Teachers of the law, experts in the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe. And then he he lists some substances that they tithe. Mint and dill and cumin. So they're, they're doing what God had commanded them to do and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then listen to this next statement. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus is not like throwing tithing out the doors. If I, I, I made a mistake, it's bad. But he's elevating justice and mercy and faithfulness because those are foundational things like tithing or helping the widow or pulling an ox out of a hole on the Sabbath day. Those are all just applications of more basic foundational truths. And these guys had got so hung up in the do that they didn't know the why anymore. And so Jesus calls them back to that. Well, guess what? Jesus would not have been able to make that statement if he didn't know I guess I erased it about the first five books of the Bible. He wouldn't know anything about that. How would he know anything about that? What tithing? What's that? What's, what's justice? What's, what is that? I don't know what you're talking about. So he, he uses the old Testament, especially the Torah to build his argument. And then the seventh thing is it contains many interesting themes that inform apologetics. So I'll just write down themes for apologetics. What's apologetics? Sorry? Okay, defense of the faith. It comes from a Greek word, apologia means to give a defense for, okay? So apologetics is like the art, the science, if you want to call it that, the tactics to defend the faith. So Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. So the, the, the approach is important, gentleness and respect. Um, but always be prepared. And he's not talking to like some super apostles, he's talking to you. And notice a reason for the hope that you have. Make it personal. Make your apologetics personal. Don't just stay out there in the realm of scientific argumentation. Tell them about the hope that you have in Christ. And that powerfully breaks down boundaries. So apologetics, the themes for apologetics, again, who God is, what is sin, what is salvation, what is atonement, what is revelation, Uh, meaning special revelation, what is general revelation? You pick up on those just in the opening books of the Bible, right? So have I convinced you that you're totally ripping yourself off not to read them, right? 
Okay, you got to spend some time there. Um, do you guys want to take a quick break? Or do you want to do you want to take like a popcorn break where you just kind of get up and leave when you want? Or do you want to take a group break? I'm concerned that we might get like bottlenecked or something. Okay, why don't we take what's called a popcorn break? So anytime you want to get up and go out in the hallway, there's some snacks. And the only thing I would ask you to do is try not to block the cameras. Okay? Because if you block the cameras and we're, we're, we later have this online and someone is getting upset, they'll see who's blocking the cameras. There's your face will be recorded. Okay? But if you, need, if you need to, there's washrooms out there and also there's some snacks and stuff. If you, if you want to wait till the end, that's fine. We're going to go for about another 40 minutes. So next question is, who wrote the Pentateuch and when? Mostly Moses. Mostly Moses. Why did I say mostly Moses? <laughs> okay, mostly Moses. Uh, so from 1446... To 1406. What was going on in 1446? What was what happened in 1446? Okay, Exodus. What happened in 1406? But what happened then? How many years were they in the desert? 40. So 1406 is around the time that the conquest begins. Remember, Moses didn't get to enter the land? Why? He hit, he hit the rock twice. God, yeah, shouldn't God have given him a break? Apparently God believes in retribution. He didn't get to enter the land, so he dies. And what we think is around 1406. Now, how do we know it was Moses? Well, the New Testament affirms Mosaic authorship. So you can write down Mark 12, 26. Uh, Acts 15, 1. Now, we don't know who finished Deuteronomy, but who would be a really good candidate for that? Joshua, right? So Joshua would be a really good candidate for that because he was Moses second and then took over after him. And him and Caleb, of course, were with Moses the whole time and two of the only older guys to enter the promised land. But we, we don't know for sure, but that's fine. We don't need to know that. Some modern scholars contend that the Pentateuch, and you might hear this when you're reading scholarly books, is just a compilation of various documents from four or more sources. And they have some letters. There's like the J source and so forth and so on. They're not real sources. Like they're not sources that an archaeologist has discovered or a historian has in their library. It's, it's based upon reading it and looking for things like, hmm, I noticed here... God is mostly called Elohim. Over here, God is mostly called Yahweh. So they, they, um, some scholars, mostly on the liberal end of the spectrum, but some conservative scholars too would say there's, there was like different streams of uh, understanding of God. Some of whom knew God as Elohim, which is like the generic word for God. It's in the Bible. Uh, some, the Yahweh's tradition that referred to God more as like Yahweh or in the German Jehovah. So these, these themes um, and, and other evidences that get kind of technical lead some scholars to think that the Pentateuch is a compilation of various sources. But the bottom line is that's very speculative and it doesn't find any support in the claims of the biblical text. So the Torah itself and the other books of the Bible never give any indication that they were compiled from various sources. There's no evidence of this in archaeology. There's no Yahwistic form of Genesis that's been discovered and no Eloist form of Genesis, for example, that's been discovered. Literary backgrounds. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they don't read like a piecemeal book. They, they actually read with an incredible amount of consistency and flow to them. So when you're reading them, I know a lot of people joke about getting bogged down in Leviticus, right? Because it's just like, wow, there's so much law here. And some of the chronologies, I'm just going to skim through these things, right? But 
there's still consistency of flow. Like you can see a historical timeline. You can see like, okay, yeah, I could see why God would reveal this now and not earlier. So that they, they, they are presented with a great deal of unity and harmony, historical tradition, the words of Jesus. This is the point is I would reject this view uh, simply because there's just no evidence for it. It's, it's very, very speculative and, because it's speculative, I don't think it helps in any way, shape, or form for us to read the Bible better. I, I think it's just better for us to, to believe what the Bible, it would appear, presents, and that is that these are books written within a 40-year window by Moses. What are some of the other names that are used for the Pentateuch? So, let's start with that one. Pentateuch, I've already described Torah, basically means instruction. But Pentateuch, um, simply means five-part book, five-part book or scroll, penta, you've heard of like a pentagram, right? The five-pointed star. Other terms that we see in scripture include the books of Moses. So in Mark 12, 26, this, these books are called the books of Moses. But that's like their title. You know, Moses wrote them, but that's the title of them there. Sometimes they're called Chumash, which just means the five And the most famous is the law. So often just called the law. When you're reading a New Testament and the writer is speaking of the law, unless there's something in the context to indicate otherwise, they're talking about the first five books. And by the way, not just Leviticus. Is that interesting? But the whole of the Torah not just the, like the, 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 the legal code that we see in books like Leviticus. There's also related terms. I'm just going to blow through these like super quick because you won't even remember them. But at least if you hear these down the road, maybe it'll stir something in your mind. So you might hear the word Tanakh. Ten, T-E-N-A-C-H. Tanakh is what many Jews would call the entire old, what we would call the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. They would say that's the Tanakh. So if you're talking to a Jewish person, they talk about the Tanakh, you're like, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about our Old, old Testament. The Mishnah, maybe you've heard that, is a compilation of oral laws collected by rabbinic Jews from about 200 onward. So rabbinic laws are not scripture. They're not, they would say they're, based on scripture, but they're laws that J Jewish rabbis have written from about 200 onward to guide the people of Israel um, in terms of practice and ethics and so forth. It's a law too? Sorry? It's a law? It's a law? Like oral laws, yeah. They would refer the to... way? Or? Not elevated to the extent of the Torah, but still authoritative. Isn't it kind of hard to say something's less authoritative and more authoritative? I mean, it kind of is authoritative or it isn't. So one might be more important. So in our country, it's like, well, you can't, you can't speed. If it says 50K an hour, you're not supposed to speed past that. Don't murder is also a law. They're both laws. One is more important, but you could argue both are equally authoritative. So they both mean what they say. Don't murder means don't murder. Don't go over 50 means. So they're equally authoritative, but they're not necessarily equally as important because the implications aren't there. Are they changing? Do they change? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I would guess it would depend on the strand of Judaism you're in. Right? So ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox, conservative, reformed, be different. The Jamana is a commentary on the Mishnah and other similar writings. 
The Talmud is a book composed of the Mishnah and the Jamana. The Midrash is an interpretive method. It's not a book, but it's a method employed by Jews to study the Old Testament and commentaries by Jews on the Old Testament. It's essentially what we would call their hermeneutic. What's hermeneutic? If I'm like, hey, what's your hermeneutic? Or we're studying hermeneutics. What are we studying? Yeah. So when we study the scripture, the way we study the scripture, that's called hermeneutics. So it's like, how do I, how do I deal with uh, grammar? How do I deal with authorship? How do I deal with occasion? How do I deal with structure? What language am I reading from? All of this and more is our hermeneutic. So everybody has a hermeneutic, even if they've never heard the word. And it's your, your presuppositions in your mind for how you read something and interpret it. So if you're like super mystical, you're always looking for mystical messages, maybe that no one's ever found before. If you're an unbeliever, maybe part of your hermeneutic is this isn't inspired. I'm just reading it as a historical book. If you're a believer, I believe in the inspiration of scripture. So that factors into your hermeneutic and in um, other religions, it's the same thing. They have an interpreted method. So midrash is this strange, what I would call a strange interpretive method employed by Jews to study the old Testament. The tetratuk tetratuk is a term used by uh, some to describe um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, just the four. And they separate out Deuteronomy as a separate book. And then the Hexateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. So they add Joshua in and make it part of the authoritative uh, foundational books of the canon of Scripture. Okay? So that's all background. That's just background stuff. And I'm guessing we'll probably cycle back to some of that. Do you have any questions about backgrounds? Where I want to go next is to just look at Genesis and just like do like a a little bit of an outline of like the the basic structure and flow of it. You had a question? Oh, okay. All right. So Genesis. Genesis. If you want to divide Genesis into four major parts, here's how you do it. Chapter one and two, give it the heading, the creation. Chapter one and two, it's the creation. If you go to Genesis one and two, people will often point out, okay, I'm reading through Genesis one God said, God said, God created this, God created that, he created this, he created that. Okay, I get it. And then you're in Genesis 2. And then God's telling us more about how Adam and Eve were created. And so some people are like, that is two separate accounts. That's two different accounts of how humanity was created. And they would use things like that or observations like that to say, clearly it comes from two different sources. One is more prose, chapter one. One is more narrative, chapter two. I would just say, we get it in prose. And then God takes the final day and he gives it to us again in narrative. I just think that's a pretty simple and straightforward and honest way to read the text. So it's not two different accounts. It's like this kind of like the summary in prose and then a ballooned out narrative of the the creation of humanity in chapter two. And functionally, why I think that's important is you're getting the overview in chapter one. Then you're like setting your eyes and thinking a lot about humanity's creation in chapter two, which makes you get it more when you read chapter three and that man and woman beautifully created by God and you see the detail of God pulling them from the ground and taking the woman from the man's rib now falls into sin. So chapter one and two creation, second section, second heading, the fall. And that's chapter three. You have, to, it's, it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You can't, everybody loves John three sixteen. You can't understand John three without Genesis three. So the fall is 
Genesis 3, and then consequences and degeneration. The consequences of the fall and the degenerate condition of the human heart is chapter 4, right through to chapter 11, verse 9. That's what it's all about. You can just summarize it. The Nephilim, Lamech's bragging that he killed people, the advent of polygamy, the Noahic flood. What is, all of that is just illustrating the consequences and the degeneration that humanity fell into because of the fall. Um, I have this notion that many of us are shocked frequently by what we see going on in culture today. You know, like abortion up till the day the child can be born. Like what secular person could ever possibly even think that's normal? Like that is just weird. Even apart from religion, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, people running around claiming something as objective as gender. Like who would have thought you could pick your gender? It's just the weirdest thing ever. But we're hearing it so much. We're like, oh, we don't want to say that. It's, nor- it's not normal. That is like incredibly weird for us to throw out things that are that objectively obvious. And so because we live at a time in history where it's like the lunatics are running the asylum, um, it's easy for us to think, man, we live at a point in history that is worse than it's ever been. And I don't think that's true. I just think most of us in the West have benefited prior to this very weird phase within which we live to a couple of hundred plus years of more obvious Judeo-Christian ethic affecting culture. So there's been like this little reprieve in the West, the Western countries, where the, the, the influence of the church and the Bible and the Judeo-Christian ethic have kind of like kept things kind of in a little more, a little bit more of a balance. But when you hop, skip and jump over the last couple hundred years and you start to go back in time, you realize there's some whacked stuff going on right back to the beginning of time. Like how long did it take for people to start doing some crazy things? Not very long, not very long at all. I mean, read the Levitical codes. You you have codes there against modern sins. I mean, really people are, people are having sex with animals back then. Like I thought that was some weirdo that just invented that in the last 50 years. No, it's going on back then. Like crazy stuff, homosexuality and all that. That was going on back then. This is, these are not new. These are not new. And those sins that I've mentioned, and that's what they are, they're sins. We start to see that kind of behavior very early on, where people are just unwinding. They're going crazy. They've pulled out all the moral boundary markers, and they're just doing whatever they want. To the point that God like wipes out most of the earth and leaves like eight people living to repopulate it. So that is what we see. We have the first, the first child born murders his brother out of jealousy. It's ridiculous. And that's like the first kid ever born. We have the genealogy from Adam to Noah in, in, in chapter five, the flood judgment, the Noahic covenant, and Abraham's offspring and whatever's going on with Noah and his son. Uh, there's f- like eight different interpretations to this. I think when Moses, when um, uh, Ham went into his father's tent and saw his nakedness, that means that he had a sexual relationship with his mother. And the child that was born of that was cursed because the child was conceived from incest. What's my evidence for that? Remember when Absalom, was having sex with his father's wives, same language. He uncovered his father's nakedness. I don't think he just went in and said, oh, I saw my dad naked. Ha 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 ha. And God's like, your, your offspring's cursed. Your son is cursed. Like X. There's a little more going on there than that. Because father was drunk. Most likely Ham went in and had some sort of sexual relationship with either his mother or stepmother. We don't know if that was Noah's first wife or eighth wife. The Bible is just silent on that. That's why the son, his son is cursed because he's probably from that union. Okay. That's just my view. I preach that. 
Some people believe it's just like the he he saw daddy nude, laughed at him, dishonored him. That's possible too. I think there's a little more going on there. So we have that. If it is an incestuous relationship, it's like, are you kidding me? You picked eight, you put them on a boat, you wiped at everybody else, they're off the ark, and now they're back at it. Like it doesn't give a lot of hope, right? For the human condition. You can never think too highly of yourself when it comes to uh, human sinfulness. Let me say it the other way around. You can never think too low of yourself when it comes to human sinfulness. Every one of us is capable of committing any sin that any other human has ever committed. Now, because life is short, we're in accountable relationships. None of us in this room are going to literally commit every sin. And some sins we're not even going to think about. It's not going to be our weak spot or blind spot or whatever. But you and I have the capacity to commit the most heinous, disgusting sins that any other human being can ever commit. And if you're like, no, that's not me, then you're, I think, you're self-deceived. Because you can. Um, early peoples in pristine environments, or having just seen the miraculous work of God save the eight people, did the most ridiculous things. So don't ever say, I could never do that. No, you could. Right circumstances, right upbringing could happen to you. So all of that's consequence, consequences, degeneration. We have the table of the nations in chapter 10, and then we have the Tower of Babel. So it doesn't take too long, the Tower of Babel. Probably was a big ziggurat. They have those in Ur and the land of the Arameans. Big, probably not literally like as in this Christian storybooks, like a 9,000 story building poking above the clouds, but some sort of a structure of some height that would have been dedicated to worshiping pagan gods. So that's section three. So one and two creation, three, the fall, basically four to halfway through 11 is uh, consequences and degeneration. And 1110 to 50 is the patriarchs. So we call these the Toledoths. A Toledoth is the generation of. So when it's like, these are the generations of, you're starting a new Toledoth. These are the generations of, you're starting a new Toledoth. So there's four, four major ones in Genesis. There's actually some subcategories as well, like for Esau and whatnot. But the four major ones are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham gets everything from 1110 to 2511. Isaac's obviously overlaps. So he's from chapter 21 to 35. Jacob, um, chapter 25, 19 to 49 is his Toledot. And then um, like chapter 49, I mean, so 25, 19, to chapter 49. And then Joseph's also overlaps. He's chapter 37 to 50. And then after that, you, it's different, right? You don't really have in Exodus and numbers, like these extensive multi-chapter biographies of some guy's life. But you get that in Genesis, the generations of, they're all like very foundational. And as I mentioned to you earlier, there's themes that come up over and over again in those chapters. Okay, Exodus, three sections. Redemption, chapter 1 to 18. Sinai covenants, 19 to 24. And worship, 25 to 40. You'll never meet a good worship leader that hasn't read the last part of Exodus. Because it's so foundational to the nature of Christian worship. So, Reading the Torah, if you're a worship leader, I don't know how many of you here are worship leaders that have to look around and think about that. Worship leaders, you should know the Torah pretty well, and you should know the Psalms pretty well. Those are your theological foundations for worship, a good theology of worship. Leviticus. Okay, there's several sections. Chapter 1 to 7, offerings. Chapter 8 to 10, all about the priests. What's a priest? What are the expectations of a priest? Chapters 11 to 15, 
clean laws. Remember all those laws? This is what makes you clean. This is what makes you unclean. We'll touch on some of those, I'm sure, later. Atonement and tabernacle worship, chapters 16 and 17. Moral laws, chapter 18, 19, and 20. Priestly and ceremonial laws, chapter 21 through the middle part of chapter 24. Chapter 24, punishments. Chapter 25, seasonal laws and slavery laws. Chapter 26, covenant blessings and cursings. And chapter 27 are offering laws. Okay. And then you're into numbers and numbers has different things to tell us. So in numbers, we have the, the, the preparations for the Sinai and taking of the promised land. We have um, basically in numbers, it's about movement, where they're going, different events that take place leading up to the promised land, traveling. If you ever look at a map, you'll see Sinai, Kadesh Barnea. So we have pro, uh, preparations to take the land journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh and the rebellion of God's people out in the plains of Moab. So think about this plains of Moab will come up, come up a lot. So you don't need to understand all of Bible geography, but super simple. There's the sea line. This is the Mediterranean sea. This is Israel. What's this little lake in the North Rob Galilee. What's this Jordan river. What's this? Dead Sea. Okay. So Plains of Moab are over here. Okay. So the people of God are coming up to the Plains of Moab. Sinai is down here. Okay. So they're coming up to the Plains of Moab and they're going to cross over. They spent all kinds of time wandering around here. Now they're out in the Plains of Moab, ready to come over into the promised land. So they spend a bit of time there preparing to take the promised land. Then in the last part of numbers 30 chapter 33 to 36, it's all the descriptions of a land. It's like tantalizing them. This is what it's going to be like. This is what you can expect. Here's some of the challenges, big people, angry people, (laughs) war, all that stuff. Okay. Deuteronomy. Here's four sections. Chapter one. Through chapter four, they're preparing Israel for the conquest. The conquest is the series of battles that they would engage in to take possession of the promised land. Before they do that, God's like, hey, um, you know that those battles we just talked about? I need you to sit you down and um, we'll do a little update on my expectations for you. So a little update means that God takes chapter four through chapter 26 to remind them of his covenantal stipulations. And then doesn't go. He kind of comes off the heels of that. And chapter 27 through 30 are all about obedience, curses and blessings. So this is a theme you'll see in the Bible. If you obey me, dot, 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 then it's an, if then it's a conditional uh, statement. If you disobey me, if then consequences and then God's blessings that he's going to offer his favor. And then verse chapters 31 to 34, are all about the leadership of uh, Israel. So that's a broad overview of um, all the books. If you were like outlining them for a teaching series, you could kind of break them down like that and teach them in sections. Now we're going to go back to Genesis and do a little more detailed work in it. So I think I'm going to sit down for this. Okay. So go to, go to Genesis (coughs) chapter one. And what's this section? What's chapter one and two all about? Creation. Creation. So in the beginning, so that's where we have the Hebrew word Bereshith mentioned. And 
Just read the first verse. Let's read it. Everybody, let's read it out loud. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do we learn about God there? Okay, that's true, Jack. Thinking more about this. God is presented as a presupposition. Notice there is, there's no argument at all given for the existence of God. There's no like, hey, those of you that may not believe in God, let me just kind of give you a little background. And then, by the way, that God created. He's just there. He's just like, he's assumed, right? He's just assumed. And I think that's fascinating. And I think it's informative too. It's fascinating because we're all people that have doubt. We all have doubt. Even people of great faith have doubts. And we, especially in the West, have been, have been conditioned to look for certain evidences if we're going to choose to believe something is true, right? So we're big into proofs. And the particular kind of proof that's most predominant today is what's called scientific proofs. So we've actually elevated science to the point people actually think that scientific proofs are universal, and that that's always how people have thought. It's actually an extremely new phenomenon, and it's, it's been dang- gone dangerously untested. I, I think it's actually, and, it, and, uh, and, and if the world's around long enough, maybe we'll get to the point where it, you know, it'll be cast to the wayside or put in its place. Because it's, it's not, the scientific method is beautiful and beneficial when used properly, but it's inadequate to answer many, many, many questions because it's designed to explore, hear me clearly, the physical world. In our construct of God, God is not physical. So this method is not adequate to even have a conversation about the existence of God. But so many in the West have bought into this mindset that everything that is true must be run through the grid of the scientific method. And if it can't be run through the grid of the scientific method, it's a fable, a fairy tale, a myth. Or if it is run through the scientific method and it inadequately falls short, or it falls short of the rigors of the scientific method, then it must not be true. And so people are casting aside their Christian faith all the time. And it's because they've never thought about the fact that you're using a method that's not designed or adequate to answer this question. So I'm not anti-science, but science needs to reserve itself for what it was designed to answer and matters of faith, which, and, and, and in our minds, okay. In our minds, cause we've been conditioned this way. Faith does not equal a fairy tale. Faith does not equal less true. Faith does not equal sentiment. Okay. It's a different, it's a different realm. It's a different subject matter. And so I, I feel like zero. I used to feel a lot more. But I feel zero need to prove anything in the Bible or in my faith using any aspect or element of the scientific method. I I don't feel in any way, shape, or form any compunction to do that. But it's really challenging when you're doing scientific uh, or when you're doing apologetics because most people have that as their starting point. They're like, I want you to prove to me that God is true. And then you fall into the trap. And and I used to do this. I used to teach this stuff in high schools and stuff. You get into like cosmological arguments and the decline of hydrogen in the universe and all this kind of stuff to try to like prove God. And at some point you hit a roadblock and it can be very detrimental to true faith because uh, it's just not in the same, it's not, it's not an adequate tool to do the job, right? You can't use woodworking tools to fix your car, you know, and um, you got to use the right tool for the job. So here we have God. God is just like, And I'm tempted to go further on this, but God is presented as a presupposition. 
when God is accepted as a presupposition and you hear revelation from God and you receive it and you start to piece together all this revelation that God has given and you accept God for who he is and you follow him, you actually do have a complete and livable worldview, even apart from the scientific method, which is kind of fascinating, actually, that one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith is that it actually works. It answers all the big questions. It um, innately makes you conscious of who you are and it resonates with what you know as an image bearer. It, um, it gives you a livable ethic. It, um, it enables relationships to flourish. I'm not talking about when we don't live it properly. I'm talking about if it's lived out properly. The Christian worldview and message actually works from end to end. And I just think that's something we need to talk more about. I, I kind of think that's where Peter was going when he said, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, give me a reason, for the hope that you have. Notice he immediately goes from reason to the hope. Give me the reason for the hope that you have. Your hope is based on reason. And your reason is informed by revelation. And revelation comes from God. So if you follow the trail, you have God as a presupposition. God reveals himself. God gives you reasons. That gives you hope that becomes livable. And so when we present faith, we sometimes get off that trajectory and we get over here into the weeds, trying to prove people using creation of all things and systems in creation to prove the existence of a God who by definition isn't even part of creation. He's not even part of it. So it just doesn't even make sense, but that's what we're, that's what we're, we're confronted with. So anyway, I think I've digressed there a little bit. So the six days of creation, God is presented as a presupposition. The world is formless and void. This parallels chapter two, verse five, when it says there was no bush of the field. Um, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord had not caused it to rain in the land. And there was no man to work the ground. So, both in one and two, one prose, one narrative, there's these descriptions of formlessness, a lack of order, um, a lack of uh, direction. And God's answer to both of those things is to place a steward in that environment to manage it. So someone mentioned earlier, one of the foundational doctrines in our anthropology is that we're made in the image of God. And I remember years ago, people trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? Oh, I know what it means. We all have like intellect and emotion and will like God does. And that's true. But if you actually just let the Bible speak for itself, it defines image bearer right out of the gates. It means you're a steward. You're not an owner. You don't own yourself. You don't own the world. You don't own the shoes you're in. You're stewarding it all. You get that down, that'll affect your entire life. It'll affect your worship, your obedience, your selfishness, your pride, your relationships, everything else. So as we've often said, what is the biggest enemy to stewardship? Ownership. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. So you look at all bad kings, even today, bad rulers, Bad pastors, ownership. As soon as you think you own it, you just cease being a good steward. Whether you're a king, a queen, a pastor, a husband, a father, a mother, business owner. As soon as you think you own it, you become a bad steward. So right out of the gates, an image bearer is a steward. And so we should never have to convince people they need to share their time, talents, and treasures with Jesus because they're all his anyway. You're just stewarding them. And one day you're going to be held accountable for how you use them. So stewardship is built right in to the creation narratives of scripture. God speaks the world into existence, except for one thing. What doesn't he speak into existence? Man. 
Man is made by God's hands. And I think that's deliberate to emphasize that we're special. So we're special in his creation because we are made by his hands. Now I I want to just give you a real quick overview of these in like two minutes, a real quick overview of the six days of creation. And then we'll come back to them next week. So I want you to look at day one, day two and day three. So what habitat is being created on day one? Okay. Heaven and earth. Um, Light and darkness, actually, the first day. Okay. Now, what habitat is being created on the second day? The seas and the sky. What habitat is being created on the third day? Okay, the the waters and the land. Okay, so what are they again? What's the first day? What's the second day? The third day. Okay, good. So now what you have is on day four, five, and six, you have the parallel occupant for that habitat being created. So what's what inhabitant is created on day four? No. What what occupant? What inhabitant? Okay, the the stars and the, the constellations and all that stuff. So that that's the inhabitant, day four, which is filling the habitat, the sky, created on day one. What's created on day five? Birds, fish. So that's the inhabitant that's filling the habitat that's created on day two. And then what's created on day six? Okay. So we have the land animals, which are filling the habitat. It's created on day three. So I just think that's kind of cool where we have habitat, 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 and then there's some parallelism, inhabitant, inhabitant, inhabitant. They're created to fill those spaces. And so we see um, design. We see foreknowledge. We see creativity. And also... And this is a kind of a profound theological thought. Right out of the gates, God, who isn't like this, but God's communicating to us, if you are, you need space in order to be. So this communicates the dependency that humanity has upon the environment and the space that God gives it. God doesn't have any needs like that. He just is. He's a presupposition. But we require the right temperature, land, shelter, food, right? Birds require air. Fish require water. So we have beauty in creation, but we also have like loud and clear this very simple message. You are dependent. You are a dependent being. And you're, in fact, dependent upon me. That's what God, I think, is communicating even in the structure of creation, okay? So, that's it. Uh, We're done for tonight. Um, We'll look forward to seeing you back here, Lord willing, next Tuesday. So, have a great evening. Thanks for coming. And make sure you finish up all those. um, The doors will be locked until the squares and cookies are gone. The table's outside the hallway.